we've been looking at the Gospel of Luke, and what I love about it is that it's narrative, very familiar stories, and this, I think, pretty sure, is a very, very familiar story. I knew I learned it in Sunday school years ago, but we don't want to let its simplicity, we don't want to miss how profound it really is. So let's ask the Lord for wisdom as we look into this. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we might see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I recently heard a, it was an interview with, a woman on a podcast, she is a fairly well-known journalist, and she was talking to a Christian about her spiritual journey. She pretty much started as nothing. Her mother was a lapsed Catholic, and her father was an Episcopalian, but they didn't really practice any religion. She goes off to college. She's an atheist. Then she goes to a large church in New York, and She's a Christian, uh, she's an evangelical Christian there, and then she drifted away from that and described how she became disillusioned with that and went back to, somewhat back to her roots in the Roman Catholic Church, and then became a little bit disillusioned with that and is basically back to not doing anything. And that is a person, four stops basically in about 15 years. That's someone who's on a journey, and it doesn't sound like the journey has stopped yet, where she'll be in 10 or 15 years, who knows. But what we're looking at today is the fact that everyone is going to commit themselves to something. Even if it's nothing, it's something. Everyone has a worldview by which they live. They're captivated by something. They're might be money or this religion or that religion. Some people make several stops. But in the passage we're looking at, Jesus says to some astonished fishermen who had devoted their life to that business, from now on you will be fishing for people or from now on you will be catching people. And it has to do with, I want you to, he's repurposing their lives and saying, I want you to be used by me so that others might be captivated by my gospel rather than something else. And that is really what we're about here at Christ Presbyterian Church, what every church should be about is that we have been captivated by the gospel of Jesus. And whatever our specific vocation, we have been repurposed to proclaim that to others, corporately, individually, and do what we can through word and deed so that others might be captivated. And I just want to say, it's really easy to get on a guilt trip about this because over the course of my life, I've 
shared the gospel with a lot of people, but for the most part, the majority have not believed. Some have listened. Uh, I've never been really opposed about it, but for the most part, many have not believed. Oh, that's nice. And it would be very, very easy to be discouraged and to get on a guilt trip about what you can't do. But this story really shows where any result comes from. Those breaking nets, who caused that? Jesus. So let's look into the story. And what I love this. Let's just enjoy the story. And then we'll draw some conclusions. Jesus is early on in his public ministry. And the three prominent disciples mentioned are Peter, James, and John. It's very likely that they were believers in him, but they had not yet been officially called to be three of the 12. Jesus had 12 disciples, as you know. So Jesus is walking around proclaiming, and he had already made a pretty good name for himself, and people were thronging after him. And so they're in the lake, they're all on the lake, and it is very likely that he was in some kind of a cove, kind of like an amphitheater. And the people, he was on the shore, so people were crowding him probably and pushing him into the water. So he turns a boat into a pulpit. Because there probably would have been a boat there. And he runs into... Peter, James, and John, who had been fishing in the lake. Now, Peter, James, and John were partners in a fishing business. Now, it's just like any business. It's a lot of hard work, but you have to put some serious capital into any business by which you're making a living, correct? I love a good fishing metaphor because as I've told you before, I worked with a lobster fisherman for years when I was young growing up in Maine. So I'll talk about that fishing business and a little bit what it's like is that, and then I'll apply it to this, is that if you are in the lobster fishing business, you have to seriously invest in equipment. What's the first thing you need? You need a boat. Diesel-fueled boat. It costs at least $100,000, at least, probably more. And you've got to have, each lobster fisherman has, they're allowed to have 800 traps that are made of mesh. You've got to have rope, you've got to have buoys, and you've got to haul them up. But this summer, it is going to be very expensive each time they go out. You want to know why? Diesel fuel is probably at its highest price ever. It'll probably be close to $5 a gallon for diesel fuel, something like that. And that's a serious outlay every time you go. But it's very hard work. You, they get up at 4 in the morning and typically go till early evening. It's a lot of work, a lot of capital investment. Because very often a lot of your ropes get cut and you have to keep replacing. Serious outlay of money. Now in fishing, you know this. What is the one thing you can't control on any given day you go out? What is the one thing you cannot control? 
how much you're going to catch. It's true in the lobster fishing, but it's even more true in fishing. Some days you might go out and catch a lot. Some days you might catch nothing. And I've, growing up, I did a lot of fishing out on the salt water. And everyone had their theories as to why on a particular day you might not catch fish. So, for instance, some people would say, well, if it's a hot day, the fish won't be biting. Now, that's ridiculous because the water's still the same temperature. It doesn't matter. It's what they call fisherman's luck. Some days you're just not going to get anything. Now, let me just describe to you how fishing worked in that culture. They didn't go out with your typical rod and reel and your transparent line. Is that these three fishermen were in a partnership. They would go out on the, on the lake and you would use two boats... And they, have, they excavated what these boats would be like. They might be as much as 25 feet long, 5 feet wide, 4 feet high. And you would take two boats and you'd run like a dragnet between them. And the fish would run in, you'd know it, it would push the boats, and then you'd pull them up. Now, they would always go out at night because... It's fairly clear water. The fish could see the nets during the day. So at night, it was darker. And so they would go out and they would fish all night. So it's a little bit different than the just rod and reel fishing. But that's how it worked. That's why they had been out that, at night. And they caught nothing. No luck that night. And that's going to happen. So they come in, they're cleaning their nets, you know, call it a day. And we'll try again tomorrow after we get a good sleep. So Jesus sees them after a completely futile night of fishing. And he says, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Now, remember, this is going to seem like ridiculous advice because... And Peter says, look, we're the experts, you're not. And I got to about thinking about my own circumstances. You know, I remember being at a block party this past summer with some lobster fishermen, and they're always talking about whether they caught lobsters or didn't. If Pastor Bruce said to them, hey, let's have a Bible study, they might or not, might not want to do it, but they would say, okay, that's what we might expect him to want to do with us. But what would they say, do you think, if I said to them, you know, lobster fishermen, you guys have it all wrong. You've got your traps here, put them here, go out at night rather than during the day, use this kind of bait rather than that kind of bait. You guys have no idea what you're doing. Let me tell you how to do it. How would they respond? <laughs> They'd run me out of town probably. Stay in your lane, Pastor Bruce. We're the experts. You're not. We know a little bit more about this than you do. And really, that's why Jesus' advice to them and command to them is fairly astonishing. 
you're the preacher, you're not the fisherman. We know about this. And not only have we not caught anything, you can't catch fish during the day. They, they're they're, they're going to see the nets. They're not going to be caught. They're not stupid. But Peter says, if you say so, this is nutty. But if you say so, we'll do it. And you see the result. They strung the net out between the two boats, and there was so much fish. Now, think how many fish this is. They filled two boats to the point of sinking. That's a lot. That's hundreds of pounds. Just hundreds and hundreds of pounds, because those boats had to be big. And Peter gets the message, and most fishermen would probably say, wow, Jesus, thanks for the profit. There's a lot of money here. No. He says something a bit unusual. Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Go away from me. For they were astonished at the catch of fish they'd taken. Now, that's a bit of an unusual reaction, isn't it? There's just literally money pouring into their fishing boats. And he says, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. But I think you can see why. This really is miraculous. Because from a human point of view, that just didn't happen. And the non-fisherman just speaks a word, go out, and this miraculous, huge catch of fish just fills the nets to the point of breaking and, and the boats to the point of sinking. And then he says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Or from now on, you will be catching people. There's nothing wrong with the fact that you've been fishermen, making your living at that. But I am now going to repurpose you in that now, in the way that you have caught fish, now you will be catching people. And Jesus spoke later in some of the parables about how the kingdom of God is like a dragnet into which fish come. You're going to be involved in catching and captivating people with the gospel. Love that story. So what can we learn from this? Well, three things, really. First of all, as, as we think about our part in fishing or catching people, here's the first thing, is that this only, this begins when we sense how much we have been caught by Jesus and his grace. The primary issue isn't so much how great we are and how many fish we can think we catch, but but look at how this begins. Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. This particular incident is when Peter really saw that he was a sinful man who needed the grace of God. I'm the expert fisherman. I'm not in control of my life. It must 
be Jesus. It only can be Jesus. This is why in the Old Testament reading, I had us read from Isaiah chapter 6. This was a a commissioning of the great prophet Isaiah and in chapter 6. And Isaiah is basically told, you're going to go out and preach to hard-hearted Israelites, and basically none of them are going to believe you. Can you imagine spending an entire life preaching words of judgment and grace, and no one believes, that would be pretty discouraging. But where does it begin? Is that we saw that just magnificent passage about how Isaiah has this vision of of the image of God. He sees the Lord high and exalted on his throne and the train of his robe filled the temple and there's cherubim and seraphim saying, holy, 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 Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. And he says, woe to me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king. That's the essence of what it means to be a Christian. is that you've seen the holiness of God at some point in your life. And like Isaiah, you said, I'm ruined. And like Peter, you say, I'm a sinful man. I'm a sinful woman. I have nothing to bring to the table, nothing to offer, no goodness, no skill, nothing that can earn the favor of God. And... That's something we just have to keep remembering, being astonished by the grace of God. I've been a Christian for as long as I can remember. And I need the grace of God as much now as I ever have. Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. That's the first thing. We have a story to tell. We've been captivated. You've got a story to tell. That's where it begins. And the second thing this points out is simply this, is that as we tell our story of the gospel from the scriptures for how we've experienced it in our lives, we just seek to be used by God to, quote unquote, captivate and catch other people. Not that we do it. It's only God that can do it. But it is our hope and prayer through conversations through our life that others might be captivated. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 25 and 26, he's talking about Timothy involved in talking to people about the gospel. He says, those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they'll come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil, who has taken them captive to do his will. Because everyone's been captivated by something. And we, we can't force people into the kingdom. We simply testify to the gospel that we know. 
And what I find is this just begins by listening to where people are coming from. This is a very diverse country that we live in. People are coming from all over the place in terms of their background. I was just looking at this. There's probably a little over 40% of the people identify as Protestant Christians, 20% are Roman Catholic Christians. There's a rising number. Have you heard the term the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, nuns? It means nothing, I believe, nothing, none. And there's a rising number of people who believe that. People might be Mormon or Jewish or Hindu or Buddhist, indifferent. Most of the people I know have some religious background. Maybe they've left it behind. Maybe they didn't see it. A lot of people are just fulfilling the, following the American dream, working, working hard, playing hard pretty much too busy to be all that interested. But as you just enter into people's stories, you can carry on conversation from there. Oh, it was sometime during the pandemic, in the past year and a half, we went to a graduation party at somebody's house, a friend of mine. And there were people of all different backgrounds. Most of them weren't Christian. And I met a woman. She was there with her husband, her children. And she was Hindu. She had Indian background. She was Hindu. And she's married to a Jewish person. And so the question always comes up, how do you raise the kids when we're committed to two very different religions? So... The kids were going to Hebrew school, but she was also teaching them Hinduism, so they're learning both. And Hinduism is a, is a tough thing to get a hold of, so we were talking about that a little bit. And then I just asked the question, do both of you go to eat your husband, do, you, do both of you go to each other's place of worship? And the answer, a big no. That was a sore spot. Well, that's a conversation, isn't it? How's that working? What does he think of Hinduism? What do you think of Judaism? Where is this headed? But I've got a story to tell in the midst of listening to that, and it's you're at a party, and there you go. Here's another one. This just happened, oh, it was Sunday. We'd been to a movie, we'd just gotten back, and there's a woman we know in our neighborhood. She's walking her dog up through our cul-de-sac. Uh, she's lived in the neighborhood about 20 years. Her husband's military, so they've moved all over. Really, really nice person. So we just got to talking. And she's just retired. Her husband's a little bit older. She, he had a bad fall which is one of the reasons she did retire. Uh, he's better now. But she basically said, we're facing the fact that we're getting older. We're facing our own mortality. And we can't do what we used to do. And that fall that he had really woke us up. 
when we moved here 20 years ago, we didn't plan on being here 20 years ago. Huge, steep driveway, three-story house. So we're going to build a bedroom on, on the first layer. She said it'll probably take two years to get it built. <laughs> but so I'm just talking to her, and I said, well, I know you're from Kansas. Do you think you'll stay here? Do you think you'll move? And she said, uh, I think we'll stay here unless the universe determines differently. Now, there's, that's a conversation to have in the future, isn't it? Because Katie and I, we're all getting older. We all need to face mortality. And the gospel that we believe is better than just hoping for the best at what the universe might throw our way. We're mortal, but we're in the hands of a loving father who cares for us and who will guide. That's the story that we have to tell. And hopefully that conversation can happen over time, but... That was very interesting is this is just a, a delightful, nice person, not into any particular religion, but is hoping the best from the universe. The gospel brings so much better in that we are mortal and the answer to our mortality is the death and resurrection of Jesus and the eternal life that we will have. But this is a rough road that we live in a fallen world. But we trust in, in a father who cares for us. So that's really the second thing is that we simply need to listen and take opportunity whenever we can to share what God has done for us. But it's Jesus who brings the results. I cannot be the one to determine whether someone moves from trusting the universe to trusting in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this image of the nets breaking is so simple, but that's, that was just a visual, very tactile image that Jesus gave these fishermen. I want you, I'm going to meet you right where you are. You're fishermen. You've had a, a total bust. You haven't caught anything. I'm the one who's filled the nets. As I repurpose you... I want you to remember that any success you have, quote unquote, is because I bring it, not you. And he later told the, in Luke chapter 8, a couple cha few chapters later, I preached on this last summer, the parable of the sower where the, sow, the, the seed is sown on four different soils and three of the four they don't believe. But it's on... The one soil where it says the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. 
And over the course, I can put names and faces to people who have had different responses, but it is Christ who fills the nets. And that's why, just to kind of wrap this up, we mentioned, we had read from Acts chapter 2, where this same Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. He preaches, he calls to repentance and faith, and 3,000 people repent and are baptized. But why did that happen to begin with? It is because of what Jesus told them in Acts chapter 1 when they were waiting. I want you to wait for the gift my father promised. And he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It is the Spirit who causes any result and brings his harvest his people into the net. We just simply faithfully fish, so to speak, spread the seed. And even the Apostle Paul, who was used to plant churches and do so many things, he says in Ephesians 4, verses 18 and following, he's in jail, and he says, pray for me also, that whenever I speak, words might be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of of the gospel, pray that I might declare it fearlessly as I should. Even he knew how much he needed the grace of God. Now, let me finish with this. I had a conversation. Again, it was with Cessna. I was in Maine, and uh, you don't have trash service there. You, you take your garbage to the it's a dump. We, it, they call it the transfer station, but it's a dump <laughs> where you throw your bags and your into different places. And I was throwing away some bags, and I got talking to a woman who was there who I'd never seen before. And she said, what do you do? I gave her, what do you do? Well, I'm a Presbyterian pastor. And she said, hmm, not many of you around here. <laughs> no kidding. Are there any Presbyterians at all there? Uh, and she said right away, I want you to know that I don't believe anything when it comes to religion. I just need you to know that right up front. We're all one, connected to the universe. But unless, oh, Less than five minutes later, she said, you know, she's a divorced woman, a little bit older than me. She said, you know, I've got four daughters, and one of them is fighting for her life, has, has the disease, and I don't know that she's going to recover. And she said, you're a minister. You have a connection. Would you pray for her? And I said, I will. Her name's Debbie. The daughter's name is Autumn. And I took my phone and I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget. I will. Isn't that interesting? In less, a couple minutes apart, I need you to know, I don't believe anything. But then it's the typical thing. You're the minister. You got the connection to God. I'll take it. Isn't that interesting? Built into people is their sense of utter dependence. You're mortal. This is the one thing you can't defeat. I will pray for her. And I wrote it down and I have. And I hope maybe this summer that conversation can continue. And 
that's how the message goes forward. It is Jesus who fills the nets, who brings any result. It is simply our task to be faithful, fishing, spreading by word and deed. Amen. Please join with me in our prayers of the people. 